Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. Team Human is ad-free and supported entirely by teammates like Craig Thayer, Peter Hunter, Ryan Kane, Bruno Diaz, Mammal, and hopefully you. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to get access to our Discord, free links to my paywalled medium pieces, access to the Rushkoff archives, and lots of other team-only perks, including our monthly live Team Human Salons. Our next salon will be Friday, May 19th at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. California time, and 7 p.m. UK time. See you there. You're on Team Human. Conscious Intervention in the Machine, a celebration of what makes human beings fabulous. Members of the animal kingdom yet performing in drag as civilized beings. Safe haven for the weird, the nerd, the queer, and other outliers, the people on whom we all depend for the magic of self-creation. It's time to intervene on behalf of people and all living things. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, TV producer, media thinker, and the author of Screen Age, How TV Shaped Our Reality from Tammy Faye to RuPaul's Drag Race, my friend, Fenton Bailey. But that's the power of drag, because you can put it on and take it off. It is a pretend. It is a playful, like, yes, I'm fabulous, but it's with a wink. Fenton is going to engage with me about the nature of the screen and the power it has unleashed for a designer reality. It's time for this show to find its fabulousness. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Hey, everybody. 
we've got a really good show for you today. I'm, I'm excited for you to hear this conversation with Fenton Bailey. But before I do, let me apologize. I know I started this uh, series of pieces about changing the register. I have these kind of four interventions for for impacting society in a positive way of things we can do. And I started them and then I just kept getting distracted by, by other issues and things with AI or things that happen. So they're, they're been left behind for a couple of weeks. So this is actually the fourth in a series of monologues about instigating social change by focusing less on changing or manipulating people than changing what I've started to call the register. I got the word register from business ethicist Jerry Davis, with whom I've been working on an initiative called Equitable Enterprise at Institute for the Future. He doesn't mean changing the cash register or moving to a blockchain ledger. Rather, he means moving from industrial growth-based values to ones of mutuality and collaborative commerce. The register is almost like, like a scale or a key in a piece of music. You go from, you know, C major to F minor, right? So we have the math and the economics to show how a circular economy distributes greater prosperity to more people more sustainably than extractive competitive ones. But shifting from one to the other would require a substantial shift in values. I mean, we're talking about a change of mindset, paradigm, social norms, collective narratives, or yes, register from personal profit to one of mutual prosperity. So this then got me thinking about any effort at social change and how we may be able to shift from an industrial age model of initiating change by manipulating people to a model where we work on changing the environment in order to make new attitudes or approaches easier to adopt. So rather than changing people or getting people to do X or Y, we create the conditions that engender the attitudes and behaviors more conducive to the kind of society we want to live in. Kind of the way in a, in a Rudolf Steiner school, they, they make the room conducive to collaboration rather than individual achievement. You know, the way that they lay out the, the, the tables or the desks and the kinds of colors they use and the softer shapes. So yes, these are actually also the same sorts of conditions we need in order to train our emerging AIs to serve the long-term interests of humans and other life. Because if AIs continue to train on our current social norms, they're only going to exacerbate our penchant for growth and individualism at the expense of everything else. So the four interventions I'm proposing are as much a way of offering them some alternative pathways as it is for us. The first one was called, you know, denaturalized power, which really just meant helping people recognize that the underlying assumptions embedded in our world are inventions and social constructions that we mistake for the conditions of nature. And the second one was to trigger agency, which is just to give people the confidence to remake those social constructions in ways that better serve us, kind of help them adopt a, a hacker mentality. But in order to do any of this, we get to what I want to talk about today, which is to learn 
to to work together and recognize that contrary to our current social maps, being human is a team sport. So the third intervention I'm calling for is to re-socialize the people. I, first, I called this re-socialized people, but uh, a friend of mine said, no, no, the people, you know, make it political. And this was really the message of my Team Human Manifesto and this whole show. We were taught in school that nature is an entirely competitive affair. And radical libertarians in particular, they like to point out that we're living in a, in a Darwinian battle for survival of the fittest individual. But if we actually read the Darwin, we find out he was not depicting a competitive world at all. Rather Rather, on page after page, he was marveling at the ways that species cooperate and collaborate among themselves and among each other to ensure their mutual survival. And as we've spoken about before, you know, trees in the forest don't compete with each other for sunlight. The larger tree doesn't shade and steal light from its smaller counterparts, but it shares its energy with them through an underground network of roots and mycelia. Then, when it loses its leaves in the winter, the smaller evergreen trees return the energy back to them through the same network. So likewise, under the assumptions of a digital media environment, Marx becomes understood as, as a kind of a top-down systems theorist looking to impose big solutions at scale on whole nations or continents. Socialism starts sounding like a totalizing operating system on the order of capitalism or, or globalism. But social ism was actually meant to retrieve the pre-industrial social reality that allowed for the creation and exchange of value between real people. Not everything goes on the ledger. Many of our exchanges are purely social, even if real value like food or services are offered. So re-socializing people, it simply means making it easier for people to ask each other for favors, to establish rapport, to build solidarity. Why are so many of us reluctant to borrow a tool from a neighbor instead of buying a new one from the store? Are we afraid to owe them a favor? Are we worried about the tool company having to lay off workers? Is there really no way for us to work less as we share more of what we have in abundance? Once we're socialized, economics becomes a last resort, not the default operating system, but a fallback mechanism for when the social fabric is torn. It's for when we lose our ability to work together as the people and devolve back into individualism. Because as we say, being human is a team sport. The extent to which we may represent the most evolved species is only a reflection of how well we've learned to communicate and collaborate. Digital technology often undermines these social mechanisms. But real-world, face-to-face contact, that recalibrates our nervous systems. It establishes the rapport required to achieve solidarity. We cannot denaturalize power or trigger agency alone. We have to do it together. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And I can't think of anyone I'd rather recalibrate with than my old friend Fenton Bailey. I've known Fenton since the 1990s when we were both banging around in the newly interactive uh, world of video and technology. Fenton is an award-winning producer and director who's worked with everyone from RuPaul and Britney Spears to Monica Lewinsky. He co-founded World of Wonder with his partner, also my friend Randy Barbado, back in 1991, and he's made a ton of documentaries and TV shows about society's uh, oddballs and outliers. The World of Wonder show RuPaul's Drag Race has won dozens of Emmy Awards, and they were executive producers on the 2021 biopic The Eyes of Tammy Faye, which won two Oscars. Fenton has just published a book called Screen Age, which was uh, the occasion for his being in New York, and I met with him in the... uh, Actually, Jeff Jarvis's office, thank you, Jeff, at uh, CUNY Grad School of Journalism to talk to him about, gosh, the book, his life, the early days, and the magical art of self-creation. So here's my conversation with the wonderful Fenton Bailey. So it's funny, in reading Screen Age, I felt like I was... I was reading dispatches from my cosmic twin, right? Because not just because of screen age, because, you know, I did um, playing the future where I coined screen agers, right? Oh, right. The, oh my gosh. The, and which yeah. was republished as screen agers. So I saw screen age and I was like, oh my gosh. But then I looked at your, the media that you were raised on, even, you know, we didn't have world of wonder here as a magazine. I guess that was a UK thing. It was. Yeah. But an idea of a, of a magazine that, that, told stories about a positive future reminded me of growing up in the 1960s with television shows like on the 21st century and the the future was particularly for kids who were teased the future and futurology for me a little bit more science fiction nerdy for you a little bit more future of humans and who we could be an escape from a uh, uh, an oppressive present. Mm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you know, with screen, that's funny about screen ages because yeah. uh, screen age has also been used to describe a, a terrible state of affairs, you know, of kids just on screens 24-7. Yeah. So I was sort of trying to counter that. But at the time, you're right, as a kid, I also think there was, in the 50s and the 60s, real optimism about the future, probably because of the horrors of Of World War War. II. And everything was new and shiny, and the dystopian future was a ways off still, right? It really was. We were coming from... Dystopia was so rearview mirror. It was so right Right. behind us. So right behind us, yeah. Right. Mommy died in the gas chambers, right? So anything... 
anything else is good. And then you're right with cars and washing machines and consumerism and television and space. Yeah. I mean, but it was a real it reminded me of the the more recent It Gets Better campaign, you know, for gay kids who yes. are like killing themselves and yes. watching social media. That we were in one big international it gets better campaign <laughs> that's so true <laughs> yes um hasn't quite turned out well actually you know what it has gotten better i do yeah. think F fundamentally if you like zoom out and gay men are not thrown in jail or or gay uh, sterilized men can get married Right. Gay men can raise families. I never thought that I would be able to raise a family and have kids, which right. has just been a joy and just a fundamentally grounding thing, you know, mm -hmm. a crazy thing and, and a challenging thing. And, and a so, bouge thing. But yes, <laughs> exactly. But a thing that, 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 especially as a gay person, oh, I can raise kids too. That feels like a full bill of rights in a sense. Like right. you really do belong in a society. You're not just here as some sort of unwelcome, slightly freakish problem. Right. No, it's right. I mean, I remember when I was coming up in theater and I could basically choose what I wanted to be. I remember people telling me, even gay people saying, well, if you don't have to, don't. <laughs> it's sort of the same as a theater career. Like if you don't have to do this, do something else. Because, right, you won't be able to have kids. People always look at you funny. You're always going to be worried about getting beat up or, mm -hmm. you know, it, you won't always be accepted. You, It's a, uh, yeah. So things really on uh, that level. Yeah. You know, there there's some positive thing. I mean, pot is legal, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, Although abortion's illegal. But well, right. There is this weird backsliding moment. I mean, who would have ever imagined, certainly not me, that a Roe versus Wade, I mean, I just thought it was done. And why now the moral panic with drag queens? Like, I n did not see that coming. Right. No. No. I mean, that was... But they pick things. They pick things that are media. Apparently they, so. I they, mean, they really do a little bit of research and figure out what is the lie that can create a trigger response. Right. And they think visually. They think in terms of memes. What yeah. picture can we show and words can we put on that picture right. to create a response? And they took that from us. You know, They we, did. <laughs> well, actually, drag, of course. I mean, it's, you know, perfect for the small screen. It's, you know, small screen, big impact. It's right. It's natural for that medium and maybe that's why they picked it because for the first time drag is really just within the culture as opposed to on the edges right and people are loving it i mean right you know most people who watch drag race do not identify as lgbtq it's My mostly, wife and I watch mostly it. Well, exactly. And it's, we root for people. I mean, it's our you. favorite reality it's show. A thank it's you a very family much. Show. Yeah, it's fun. Oh, it is. And it also has a little bit of RuPaul doing kind of next generation Oprah. For yes. Us. Oh, my God. There's gosh. a spiritual. Ru thing. is so Oprah like. I, I've always felt that. Yeah. That there's, uh, even in, even. In his pre-famous stage, yeah. although I don't know that there ever was, in Rue's mind, a pre-famous Rue. I always you thought Rue was Marxist. 
<laughs> well, because of work. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, well, that's a deep song. I mean, you're right. Yeah. You deconstruct oh the song, but there's a, there, you could do a bunch. Yeah. And then you do, do, do well, not work. Well, it was, um, um, yeah, supermodel. Um, yeah, supermodel. Yeah, but work. And then you look at Rihanna's work and yes. do a, a. Wow, you're giving me idea. Like, But there's a the great sequel. compare and contrast. But it is yes. the sequel. It is the sequel. And I love that idea of work adapted turned out of the sort of factory nine to five, but turned into a lifestyle choice to be celebrated uh, in a playful way, right? Yeah. It's sort of work is a, oh, we're, you reclaim okay. it. Oh my God, you off reclaim we go. it. And then, right, and then yeah. you could bring in sex work, which, yeah. abs you know, yeah. we had um, Connor Habib on, we were talking some about yeah. sex work and he was like, you know, the reason why sex work is so verboten is because it exposes what work is. That all work is you are giving your time huh. to someone else and your body is in the office at that time and no one wants to admit that they're that? actually working for the man. We're all working for the man. We're all working for the man. I love this. Yeah. Um, I mean, of course, I love the way sex work has somewhat been emancipated in the sense that you don't have to be on the streets. You can be a student with your OnlyFans, the way you can have this sideline. Right. You know, that it's been, uh, has it been somewhat destigmatized? I think so, in a way. No one, you don't, you don't feel that people need to have shame about having OnlyFans, mm. right? Right. Well, though many do. I mean, I mean, many parents, I'm sure. Oh, well, <laughs> yes, I, yes, I suppose. For, for whatever they're doing. Yeah, but, uh, right, well, it depends. I mean, I always, when, you know, back in, this, in, the, in the days when I did screenagers and people are talking about kids and work, it was always about, well, how does the person feel about doing it? You know, I don't care what it looks like to you that they're wearing headphones or they got their, 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 their fingers are on the keys. Are they a slave of technology or not? Talk to the person. Are they mm. having fun? Then <laughs> well, they never do talk to the person, do they? The, no. the judgment comes from outside. And I mean, it does seem that we always demonize the latest technology is the, the demon yeah. threat, like TikTok, right? Well, that's where, oddly enough, I mean, I was reading the book, sad that we didn't know each other earlier, although we knew each other by the early 90s. We well, knew each other. Thanks to media virus. I mean, that, Actually, that was a life-changing read mm, for me. No, really. I mean, it was you. like... It, it's it to this day is a spectacular it's masterpiece. You well, know, thank and, you. And, and Screen really Age, your book. book is the closest thing I've seen to that kind of analysis, where we're joyfully deconstructing media for the hidden agendas inside it. Uh huh. And I think accepting the world we're in, rather than so many books about media try to denounce it and would try to turn the clock back, say, this is a bad thing, we have to undo it, we have to do yeah. away with it, it's addictive, or, or whatever it is. That's what one of the first things that you mentioned in this book, and then I want to go back even further, though, one of the first pieces of media that, it, that, that, that triggered you was a PBS frontline documentary called Does Television Kill? Yes. Right? Which was all about how Power Rangers and all this media is leading kids to kill. Do you know... The first time they aired that, they invited me and the woman who started, what was her name, Liz Tomas or Toman or something, who started the media literacy organization in America, okay. a, a former nun, and someone <laughs> else no. to do a panel with Bill Moyers wow. about does television kill? And that's when I was on there saying, I mean, I was, I was the kid. 
Uh, at that point, and I was like, me, there's there's no evidence of causation here. I was trying to make a basic correlation. So violent kids might like Power Rangers more, but I don't see what we're talking about here. This right. is not. The, the, I, I watched violent stuff. There's just no. I mean, you're you're basically making the Plato argument against Aristotle here, mm. right? That you don't want catharsis of any kind, and that there's no. And the hand wringing was so. But it's funny because I was on that, and then I see, and I hadn't thought about that since. Uh, wow. I read in your book, and that like you were. I was so triggered sitting there on this panel, just yelling at <laughs> my hero, Bill Moyers. I'm yelling at the guy. Well, of all things, making a television program does television kill? Like, I was just talking to Constance Penley, you know, who's uh, who teaches porn at the US, mm. as USA, and she was t- telling me about this, the elitist maneuver, which is the device whereby institutional or respectable media does something, covers the story, touches it, is all over it, but then separates itself from it. Oh, but that's not us. And the elitist maneuver is like, does television kill? Or the New York Times doing about pornography and then sort of ultimately saying what a terrible thing it is. You know? The, the right. S- it's like a, it's like the larger version. I mean, the, the moment-to-moment version of that is the New York lefty liberal seeing Trump or Tucker Carlson or someone say mm. something awful and then retweeting it to right. all their friends. With a, a frame of judgment around <laughs> yeah, it. Yes, exactly. exactly. It's like you're still saying the thing. I, I have I have been guilty of that, actually. Well, of because it, of it's replicating. A yes. Those are memes. That's yes, means we yeah. involuntarily we involuntarily spread them. But the, then the other thing I saw from early on, so Quentin Crisp mm. was one of your your you saw him what in a in a documentary. It was a a play. It was play for today, I think, which were basically plays made into uh, TV dramas. So it was made for television, and it was uh, John Hurt playing Quentin Crisp, and it was just the story of his life. It was like a biopic. I had never heard of him. In my life, I subsequently met him here in New York, where he moved and, mm-hmm. and lived until the end of his life. Yeah, but it was just 16 years old. I'd never seen anything quite like it. He was so flamboyant, had dyed red hair, you know, just very femmed out, leaning into this sissy yeah. queer thing. Not it so much in the 70s as in, you know, the war years. Right. When he actually spent a lot of time servicing American uh, Navy people who were at Portsmouth, which is where I grew up. So he would walk along the front and give satisfaction to the soldiers, which was a, a war service in its own kind. Yeah, of course. And, um, yeah. <laughs> but, but such a, a repudiated figure and so abhorred and and. F- and beaten up, and and I just couldn't believe the sort of courage and the just the, the sheer defiance of him. And at the end of the film, he's like, he moves to New York, and I'm like, that was. I was like, oh, that's I have to go to New York. So then you moved to New York, and the year that I got accepted to NYU Film School. I went to CalArts because I had been in New York huh. in this area so long. I went uh, to California uh, Institute of the Arts. And then I see that you went to NYU Film and Randy, your partner yeah. in, in crime and love and all sorts of things. I mean, good crime, of course. Uh, <laughs> and making, making some of the greatest yeah. movies and television shows of the last 30 years. Thank you very much. But And I was thinking, oh, fuck. If I had gone to NYU, I would have been part of the posse and all if that. But then you said out. you dropped out. <laughs> yes. You dropped out after the first year. So I was like, oh, good. I don't have to worry. NYU, uh, the film program, was very snooty, actually. It was I right mean, it was, after um, Spike Lee had just gone there. Yes. Well, he was, I think he was an undergraduate, right? And Randy oh. and I were in the graduate program. Right. They didn't have 
they they didn't, you know, it was, it was around the same time MTV had just launched and Randy and I thought this was so exciting and dynamic and a, a kind of television we'd never seen before. But at NYU, film school, it was like, television? Oh, that you're was... You're a film, you're a film right. student. You have to go We're... into Washington Square Park with a Bolex and go. shoot a silent movie about meaning. Yes, yeah. or, or we'd study the rules of the game, like uh, in our editing class and note that the floor was black and white chessboard and mm. all these noir films, which, by the way, are brilliant. But at the same time, we would sometimes sneak off and go to the Pyramid Club for happy hour and see these amazing drag shows. Right. And so in the balance of this versus right. that. Right. You were going there seeing the drag shows. I was going to Max's Kansas City and seeing the black and white rock videos oh of the, you know, the, the homemade videos of the Dead Boys. But it was the same thing. It mm -hmm. was like a, a, a new punk media was yes. born. Right. You know, the Sony Port-A-Pack. Yes. I mean, oh my gosh, the, the Walkman, the Sony Port-A-Pack. And there was a pub, yes, there was a, before I moved to States, there was a pub in London called The Sound and Vision, mm. which is great because, you know, pubs are like, you know, the cat's arm yeah. or the horseman's head. <laughs> yeah. This was called The Sound and Vision. And it had a video jukebox. And for 50p, which was you know, kind of a lot when you were a student, you could play a music video, which was so, oh my gosh, you know, like Adam and the Ants, Stand and Deliver, mm. Steve Strange, Fade to Grey, this... It was punk, but it wasn't punk in that anarchic tear up the establishment sense. It was punk in that sense of people just doing this stuff and all this electronic music and these incredibly visual videos made for next to nothing. But it felt like something really exciting. Right. And it did feel like there was a fundamental shift going on. And I was, I was, you mm. know, as I was reading your book, I started to make this note to say, you know, that you're chronicling the way we're empowered to kind of reframe media that as people who were partly, you know, repressed, oppressed or cast aside or teased or beaten up for whatever reasons, me more nerd, although they used the fag word, it was more because I was a right. nerd. Right. You was more genuine. Uh, Real fag. <laughs> <laughs> but but they, when you could reframe or remake media, it gave us a kind of power. Yes. So first I was thinking, you talked about it, really three levels of it, which, which to me are the same three levels I feel like I've been sort of thinking about in my work all along. That first, as kids, we could see the secret message from our hero. Like you watch a Pee Wee Herman uh -huh. or someone and there's like, wink, wink, I am, are you? You know, right. there's a thing. So the first level is just to see it coded. as a kid. Right. Coded, yes. Yes, I am, are you? Then second was like we could recombine and cut and paste media. More like yes. Genesis Peorage and, right. and William Burroughs, you know, cut and paste. And then finally, and this is where RuPaul was, we can fabricate our identity entirely. You can actually fabricate, almost synthesize. You know? Yes, but there's a connection between three and one in the sense that the coding of something that's immediately kind of like drag. It's immediately taking something and creating another, like Batman was, I think it was coded in the sense that it wasn't really about superheroes, you know, the original right. TV show. It was camp and it was profoundly gay, but it wasn't gay in the sense of Men fucking men, gay. No, but that homoerotic energy, yeah. that sparkle, that that sort of attraction between two men of the same sex, it would mean that they would put on a fabulous outfit and go fight crime or whatever they do. The point is they're doing it together. They're also transgressive. They're climbing up the walls of buildings. 
they have superpowers. I mean, it's sort of drag, I, I think. And why drag has become such a... I believe drag is the perfect medium for our times. And I believe that drag is... The American culture is... It's a drag culture. Right, but when... If I get, and I've had a, a, a like job, if I get a job right, and I got to wear like a suit for mm. the job mm. where I'm doing a talk and they say, oh, business, you got to wear, when I wear, I'm in drag. Business drag. Yeah. It is business yeah. drag. You're doing business realness. Category right. is. Category. Yeah. The category is yeah. business realness. Or you're real. in your business era. So yes, you got. Right. But it's like those roles, I guess for so many people, the roles become the thing i remember in college mm-hmm. around sophomore junior year i would see kids land on their identity and yes fuse it it would fuse it the- would fuse and it's not drag anymore drag is playfulness and it's a wink there's always a wink like this is not real this is the illusion is powerful it's not that it's fake or unreal but the, the illusion is the spectacle is the thing and it's the wink is letting you know that it's not real in the sense that not to be taken too seriously. Or at least it's provisional. You know, that's why Pro- I always loved Puck. And you 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 quoted Puck in the book. If mm-hmm. we the shadows have offended, think on this and all is mended. And yes. I try in all of my talks, I try to do that, and people go, Oh, you're so puckish. When you <laughs> speak, and the reason I'm puckish is because I'm trying to undermine the illusion of my expertise. To say that, yes, I think these things and I maybe research them and all and I'll fight for them. But what do you think? <laughs> maybe, maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. But I, I think that that puckishness, the Statue of Liberty, I feel oh, embodies I this. You do this you know. great deconstruction of Statue of Liberty, particularly she's green alien. Right. And she's modeled on a man's face, man's which I never face. knew. And mass, this massive monument, completely hollow. I mean, right. it is drag, and not like again. I know I was, when I was a kid, I figured it was a solid piece of metal. Because well, I thought the same too. Yeah. I was slightly appalled when I was you like, it's two it. millimeters thick, yeah. you know. But that's the genius of it. And look what she's wearing too. I mean, I oh, I it's know. just draped fabulous. stuff. I know, right? <laughs> the Anne von Fustenberg. I wonder sometimes if the wrap dress that she, for which is famous, kind of came from the Statue of Liberty. Mm. Possibly. I would, she's, I, always, she's never admitted or, or denied. I would buy it. <laughs> I would buy it. But then, you know, there were these, these, you go back, you almost have to go back to Warhol for the you first do. sort of intentional wink, which, mm-hmm. which you do. And sort of trace Warhol and the factory and the cameras and the 24-7 all the way to, you know, a big brother. And then even we live in public, I guess, with, right. uh, with, with, with in the city, which is when we were here by the 90s. Or, and then I was thinking, well, then you might as well trace like Lance Loud to Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> you sh- yes i mean oh my god the, what was that the family right that's loud it was hanging out with warhol at the chelsea i know oh. and and that, knew. that's a weird thing is that and i didn't really mean the book to be an autobiography but it felt like needed to begin it in this chapter in the east village because there was this moment what do you think there was there was this moment where these people were just in this sort of rough geographical area and it's fascinating to me how many things just sort of iterated out of that time yeah and we went there i mean our people and we were young in there you know this was when the the, yeah. the slightly older people were actually 
making that stuff. It was, yeah. but we came there after like Patti Smith and yes. Sam Shepard and John Cage. And who was the, the dancer who did with the computers and stuff? Um, um, oh, I forgot. Um, Someone's kicking the speaker now because I don't know. <laughs> uh, but there were people, they came and then we went to the East Village when it was like paper magazine. Yes. And it basically paper was the way we knew, you know, and then Giuliani is sort of, or Koch and Giuliani are trying to squash the club scene mm -hmm, where mm -hmm. this is happening. And we're just seeing, I'm going to like squeeze box and seeing, you know, Joey Arias do oh freaking, you know, Barbara Streisand or something and going, what is happening? But like that is at the same moment that I'm finding out about computers and cut and paste and making stuff. And I'm like, are we moving into a designer reality, a plastic reality where we can create the and, whole thing? Yeah. And Again, that's I think drag is inherently a cut and paste medium, isn't it? I'll take a bit of this, I'll take a bit of that. I've never seen drag really as about gender. And I feel that that was more the West Village idea of mm. drag and the sort of sun like it hot idea right. of drag versus this kind of punk super drag, which was a kind of, I'm going to take bits from this commercial slogans, like little bits and pieces and create a new create something new out of existing stuff like a collage and a and a mashup right which then crosses right over to um you know cosplay and yeah. comic-con and which is why there's you know i come more from the manga sci-fi side of it but uh -huh. it's the same thing of i am this i am astro boy yeah. i am <laughs> yes I would I mean, maybe we should shift attention of the uh, drag panic, uh, moral panic to cosplay and say it's not the drag queens that you need to worry about. It's cosplay people you need to worry about. Well, well, like, well no, poor I'm, thing. We can't. I'm joking, we of can't course. do it to them. But you know, maybe it should be the we should the, the Republicans should aim their guns at the MCU. You know, right, <laughs> right. And then, oddly enough, historically, mm. we get you know RuPaul doing supermodel. Yeah. yeah. Right around the time that Rodney King's tape comes out, another just – which for both of us, the Rodney King tape was such a moment. It was. You know, for me, it was the you know the power of in, of independent media. Some guy happened to be there with a camcorder and now this thing will spread virally of its own accord. Which it did. Without the permission mm -hmm. of the you know mainstream news keepers, they couldn't keep it down. And I think that belief, that sort of excitement that it was going to be sort of vigilante news, amateur news hounds, and that the with the cameras in the hands of the people, the, you know, police brutality was going to be finally held to account. Of course, I think we were naive yeah. in the respect that tragically that isn't what has happened. It isn't. In some ways, it's just made it. Well, there's so much of it that mm. the latest live streamed police brutality is just, oh, another one? Mm -hmm. It's almost banal. Mm -hmm. It's so hard to even trigger the... the Yes, and the system, or maybe, I don't even know if I should say that way. There have been ways now to counter the power of that in the sense that even with Rodney King, you know, the judge decided in the, uh, the court case that followed to move that trial to Simi Valley, where he was almost guaranteed that the police would be acquitted of beating Rodney King, which of course was what led to the LA riots. The same judge, I think this is so fascinating, who actually banned 
cameras from the courtroom in the second Menendez brothers trial. Mm. And the same judge who also said that whole story that they were being abused by their father was not admissible. And through and and given that, the jury had could only reach the conclusion that they were guilty of murder. Which is kind of intriguing the way the the way that seeing is believing, but it doesn't mean that out of that comes more equitability or more justice or more mm, it's I think we all thought that the information, the information age was it'd be this great transparency and that we'd all be the wiser. Right. And it hasn't quite well, it's been more complicated than that. More complicated. And I'm not pessimistic about it. I think that, you know, because in this in the same way we've the quiz, like, and the nerds, we've all become visible because of these abundance of screens. Right. So that's that's the good thing. And and then there's so too have the conspiracy yeah. theorists and you know right well you know operation mindfuck you know has yes. been used by them now right yes yeah went a little <laughs> maybe a little too far but then i wonder you know when i i look back and i read in your book about you know mike nesmith and the monkeys yeah. and sort of he it kind of invented the the rock video and and remembering that and i don't mean this egotistically but joyfully that we were kind of a part of that moment you know we were maybe a little late on it but we were part of it and you made all of these documentaries using the new technologies and the bottom-up media and created a company and i wrote books that got published i mean i wrote books about like beavis and butthead and ren and stimpy stuff that was unpublishable prior you made tv shows about a friggin' drag queen and and tammy faye and stuff that nobody and and um michael alig and the party monster um the the club i mean stuff that you wouldn't have thought was was possible in ways that you wouldn't have thought was possible. Are, am I guilty of doing a kind of Paris at midnight looking back or midnights in Paris sort of oh, like yeah. this great moment in the early 90s when anything was possible and now we're here. I mean, <laughs> are we here or is this <laughs> is this as good in its own way? Is there, I mean, we were suffering, Giuliani, there was kids, oh. we were pink triangles and the, I mean, people don't, you know, I'm telling my students that we put pink triangles in our windows if you yeah. were on the ground floor so that gay people, when they were being beat up, would have a safe apartment that they could bang on and know that the person's going to welcome them and not kill them. I mean, that's how bad mm-hmm. it was in the, in the 90s in New York. Yeah. We're definitely nostalgicizing here. Yeah. But, and I do find fascinating in a way, also, it does seem as if people are interested in that period. And they have a sort of, it's lovely to be able to say, oh, well, we were there, we lived there, we experienced this. And I just love, though, sometimes the way they imagine it was, is very much more utopian than it was. And... Rue said, so I spoke to Rue and he said something that, because often we asked, you know, how did you feel at the time that people were dying of AIDS? It was just hundreds, thousands of people in New York and that community were just dying. And you know, the interesting thing is for all that suffering, I think we pushed it to the sides and that the what we were doing was sort of defiance. It wasn't necessarily politically pointed. It wasn't necessarily activist, or some of it was, but by and large, just making stuff and putting on shows and doing things was the best revenge and was a way of coping with this this horror that was happening. Yeah, it was a different... 
I mean, I remember right before, at least as I was far as I was concerned, right before the AIDS crisis, I um, went and saw opening night, the movie Can't Stop the Music at the Ziegfeld oh, yeah, yeah, in yeah. New York. Mm-hmm. And it was like, for me, oh, it was my goodness. the peak of happy. What I would have given to be that. That would have oh, been great. That's there were real village people there. I oh mean, it was God. the whole thing. <laughs> it was a whole like, thing. and um, But it was like the moment that it was like, this is okay now. And we were mm. all thinking it's everything's going to be okay. Mm. Whoever you are, free to be you and me, Marla mm. Thomas finally yeah, wins. Sure. And then it was like it was like a month or two later I first mm. heard oh some acquired immune Grids. thing and the, Grid, this was... and that. Yeah. Do you know though it's funny you mentioned the village people because actually uh they weren't they, gay. No. <laughs> well, gay, gay, they were queer, gay or not, they were right. very queer. And also, again, very drag. This mm. idea of like these outfits and these uniforms. One of my, fa- my favorite village people story is they got a battleship from the Navy to make the video for in the Navy uh-huh. because the people in the Navy had no idea. They didn't decode the song. They had no right. idea what was. And I just, that is just. Delightful. I mean, talk about queer joy. That's yeah. fascinating that that was a sort of a high watermark moment. And you know, the other thing that I want to say was like that you said we were like a little bit later in terms of, you know, post Patti Smith and Sam Shepard. And I do think there was a shift in that that 70s New York was very uh, fuck the system, anti establishment, you know, we're artists and not about commodification, not about materialism, which I think was the interesting twist that came in in the 80s. Mm. And that for the first time, independent work became ambitious. I suppose I look at Madonna Material Girl as a sort of perfect symbol of that, that it's okay to want to make it. It's okay to be independent and want to succeed rather than independent and fuck you, rather than it, it was a it was a different right. we could have our cake and eat it too yes you know but but because interesting yes because madonna was material girl but she was also there was um the movie um desperately seeking desperately susan, seeking susan yeah. which yeah. was kind of indian strange and yes yeah so she kept a foot in both in both places yeah. but you know and then she took such shit for vogue you know, because people felt like she had uh, appropriated. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if she had released Vogue today, say, she would not have gotten away with it. I mean, she took shit right. for it, but not that much shit. She didn't get cancelled, you know. Right. And But I, I've always had a, uh, that appropriation. I find a tricky conversation because so much of pop culture is – a mix and a mashup. Right, you're kind asking of, me. Right, I'm appro- allowed to have sex with people of different cultures, mm. right, and mix genes. Mm. But you're saying I'm not allowed to have cultural sex and mix phenotypes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? Because meme meme mixing. It's all I know how to do. I'm basically a meme DJ, right? And then, you know, <laughs> yeah. Right? So yeah. it's, it's scary yeah. if you can't do that. So, you know, you look at the conversation between Disney and uh, the anime studios. You know, that became, you know, Disney does something, the anime studios do something, then Star Wars happens, and that there's a conversation back and forth uh-huh. where mm-hmm. we're appropriating Seven Samurai or, or, or right. uh, to make this and that. It's like you have that conversation. It's it's Talmudic. You Mm. just cite your sources. We're in the age of the ready-made. Like uh, Warhol was 
he didn't make anything that wasn't a copy of something. Right. You know, whether it was a Coke bottle or a Brillo soap pad box or the last thing he ever did was Leonardo's Last Supper. But he didn't do those. He didn't do Leonardo's Last Supper. He went out to 14th Street and bought a 14, uh, like a 14th Street uh, Rug. ceramic a, yeah, sculpture, yeah, right, yeah. which, you know, so he right. it was a copy of a copy, you know. And his collaborations with Basket were, you know, just putting logos on things and GE and Xerox and just, I mean, I'm with you. I find it very hard to, how does pop culture move forward if it can't do this? Right. You know? And what we're talking about is almost um, magic, right? It's sigil magic. When mm. you start taking their logos and reappropriate them mm-hmm. and create a new spell out of them, yeah. you know, it's, it's if, if you don't have the ability, I mean, particularly in, in, I guess it's punching up you're allowed to do. You're allowed to appropriate when it's GE. It's easy. If it's, you know, some kid's art coming from the barrio, you know, you better not commercialize his shit. Right. So it's a power thing, I suppose. Because I was thinking about Dapper Dan, who's in the book, Mm. Um, the way he would take Louis Vuitton logos and he'd go and buy the sort of the bags that they put the suits in, which were printed with the logo, and he'd cut them up and make jackets out of them. And of course, Louis Vuitton was always trying to shut him down because they thought he was, you know, yeah, you know, copying him, appropriating him. And and he said, No, I, I'm not a, I'm not appropriate. He said, Well, A, what is slavery other than appropriating a whole culture? And B, he said, I don't I'm not I'm not stealing them. I'm blackenizing them. I'm like giving them a new power, a new resonance. And I love the way the major fashion houses, these luxury houses have gradually come around to that where they've they've brought in, you know, Pharrell is their new visual director. Yeah. It's like a the problem is always property. Property is just problematic <laughs> and i guess will always be so right yeah i mean talk to any indigenous people they still don't get property they're like huh? I mean, it is this concept of ownership yeah. yeah yeah but then there are these these other icons that have come through your your over tammy faye for example i don't look at her as a traditional gay icon like a joan collins or someone because she's tammy faye but you your work you've done like I think three different pieces Yes, based on her. I mean, what was the original fascination with her? Because I didn't take her seriously until really the second of your <laughs> movies. <laughs> we didn't. I mean, we, Randy and I were watching Tammy Faye on PTL when we were living on 9th Street. And a lot of our friends were watching PTL because Jim and Tammy built this sort of television empire. They were just on TV. And, you know, Warhol always believed that TV was the great magnifier. Mm. You know, he's like, if you could be on TV, you would be mega famous because you would be in millions of people's living rooms. Not just something you go out and buy. It's just you are in their home. You are in their lives. And so Tammy Faye was sort of adjacently virtually in our lives the same way madonna in the music videos we'd watch mtv and ptl Mm. and something about her though was it was the drag queen aspect of her plus she really did seem genuinely accepting and inclusive and there was a wink she had the wink and she did though she did and when we met her the first couple of times, like you, we weren't sure. We thought she's really entertaining. But gradually, sort of slowly, it dawned on us, she's a real, she's a genuine icon. And 
an icon because she's a brilliant communicator. So a gay icon, I don't know, in the sense that we were surprised when the film played at Outfest because I think one or two people said, well, it's not really a gay film, is it? Because mm. Tammy Faye was not ident- did not identify as gay. Right. But there was something so magnetic about her and two gays. fabulous yes. about her with the the i mean it's why but the eyes of tammy faye is what you called the first title film. came first yeah and it was like that was it she said i'm a drag queen and those eyes were tattooed on you know rue says like drag doesn't hide who you are it reveals who you are and i i feel that tammy mm. created a look for herself that was on the one hand like a, a superhero outfit, but it was also a rev- an extension of who she really was. And it was irresistible. Like, I think, you know, we just love bright and shiny things. And mm. she was that. But then there were other figures that you worked with, like uh, uh, Monica Lewinsky, Britney Spears, who were, as women, treated as badly as gay men. <laughs> Some ways, really, yes. You know. Um, worse, you know, in terms yeah. of the media drubbing they received. I mean, yeah. And you were kind of, I mean, reclaiming them, salvaging them, celebrating them, yeah. rehumanizing them. I love the way Monica is now the Monica of today. I think a lot of people are too young to even know what it was like for her or what that whole right. incident was. They probably know why she's famous, but not what it was like at that time because she was – she was, wasn't she, in the eyes of the nation, in terms of the media, public enemy number one. Right, the harlot who brought down our president. Right, right. And yet she's always been this, actually like Tammy Faye, I think, a, a brilliant communicator, mm. someone who's fundamentally empathetic with other people and able to connect with other people. And Monica and Tammy definitely had that. Now, Brittany, I think, is, uh, I, I'm a huge Britney fan, really big Britney fan. And I think the trouble for Britney is that no one will believe that she is not that person on stage. They need a character that fits Hit Me Baby One More Time, Oops, I Did It Again, Slave for You. But she's not that. She's Britney Jean, as you you call her. And, you know, she's like, I'm just an ordinary, boring person. And that fundamental truth that she has said many times, we refuse to accept. And that's why Cara Cunningham, as she is known today, the YouTube kid who made the video, leave Britney alone, when at the the peak of that, when she's being bullied, I think it's sort of, we have to leave Britney alone. Leave her alone. Even now, the Free Britney campaign wasn't leaving Britney alone. Right. And now that she is, quote, freed, people won't leave her alone. There's now theories that she's been replaced. And uh, my heart goes out to her, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's the downside of the Warhol power of media. Right. I mean, you can't do a hit like, you know, whoops, I did it again. Mm. And, 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 you know, hit me baby one more time. They, they were so huge that you're in people's psyche. Yes. You belong to everyone. And I think it takes incredible strength to be that, to like live with that, you know, and to remain yourself somehow. Right. It's basically impossible. It's basically, right. I mean, who knows? I mean, with, with, uh, uh, 
you know, Michael Jackson's a whole other other story. But if yeah. as a child he hadn't been in that situation, who knows? Right. You know, because it's the it's that moment in history that that he stopped. Right. Mm. <laughs> you know? There's definitely a kind of it, never mind. Does TV kill? Does fame kill? You know. Or drive you mad. Right, does TV kill? That's what their show should have been about. <laughs> it's more about the people who are on the screen and the people who are <laughs> right, watching it. Right, rather than the technology. Too. Right, because yeah. you can't. It's like you are you are the sigil, you know, and then you just can't do that to someone. Mm -hmm. Not until they're Tammy Faye age, at least, you know, and can do it consciously and and Yes, willfully. and playfully. And again, you know, I I'm sound like an old broken record here, but, but that's the power of drag. Because you can put it on and take it off. It is a pretend. It is a playful, like, yes, I'm a celebrity. Yes, I'm fabulous. But it's with a wink. So I, and I, the drag queen can go yes. home and take it all off and just. But on that level, isn't, mm. um, and I don't mean this in a worshipful or praising way, but isn't Trump a drag queen in that sense? Isn't that somehow, the only way I can imagine him being able to sleep at night mm -hmm. is that he knows he's in drag. He's playing this dude. Right. I am passionately hate Trump with almost every fiber of my being. But I hated him before he was president. Just yeah, seeing, no, I didn't I, know. I see him at a Knicks game <laughs> and think, how does he live? Does he know he's an ass? He, surely he knows who he is, right? <laughs> no. There was a documentary that didn't get much play, and it was about Trump and his golf courses in Scotland and the way he bullied the people who lived around the golf course because he wanted to take their yards and felt their houses were ugly. So he would bring in bulldozers and just pile up mountains of dirt so that their house couldn't be seen. And the person who made the documentary got an interview with Trump extraordinarily. And the interview, Trump, they, they put a lavalier microphone on him. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. This should be a gold lavalier. They're much better. Um, you need to put a gold lavalier on. I'm not wearing this. And there was, you know, like, I, I, is this, can this be real? <laughs> and he has gold lavaliers, like, that he would then make them use. There was no dead behind the eyes. There's no irony. There is no twinkle. But which is why in the book, uh, I describe him as a virus. I should take a, right. a leaf from your work. I was like, this is who this person is. This is what this thing is. I know. And he's like on the other side of Rodney. You know, you got Rodney and OJ on one side of this, mm. this maelstrom of media insanity. And then we get uh, Trump and, you know, conspiracy. What's his face? Um, Alex Jones. Alex Jones on and the other. those Fox News reporters. I mean, I do think there is some sort of performative aspect to them for sure but whether well we know it is because once they, we saw the text messages they know the, that they're like they, right, right that it is drag right but it's bad drag Doug. right it's bad drag right um, because it's not wink fabulous it's, it's not it's it's wink the opposite uh, hateful. Well, yeah. good drag good wink good fat it adds doubt and to the it, it adds play to the steering wheel it creates more room this like locks it down in yes it also shuts people out versus welcomes men right and i think it's fundamentally you know the poem on the statue of liberty is you know i lift my lamp beside the golden door you know bring me the teeming refuse the drag we're talking about the bad drag is is like trying to push away the teeming refuse right Right. I mean, I guess my earliest experience of drag was um, 
I'm sure you were around for these. Was you know the Rocky Horror Picture Show? Oh yes! Oh my God! Another I another. We didn't even know what we were doing, but we loved it. Loved it. it. Yes, I think my parents were like, and we acted it out. We would go to the theater. Sweet transvestite. (laughs) Yes, but when I was singing to my parents, I remember like, I'm just a sweet transvestite. I just they were like, um, okay, you know, like (laughs) because I don't think I fully knew. I didn't what it meant. I just thought it was like this joyous, over the top, fabulous. Visually anarchic, creative, inventive, and decadent in a divinely comic way. And of course, favorite song, Don't Dream It, Be It, which is, that is the American dream in a tweet. Mm. Do you think we can keep this spirit alive? I mean, Rue is doing as well as ever. I mean, the the drag race is is going up in value rather than down now right it's not a it's not past its prime it's moving around the world and yeah so i'm I'm wondering it's hard right now for for me for a lot of us where especially with climate change and uh women's rights and uh, police brutality and i mean where where is the hope I've often, you know, get, get accused when I'm when I'm being hopeful of being like, oh, people always, oh, you're like the band on the deck of the Titanic, mm. and I go, <laughs> that's what's mean. wrong with me? <laughs> yes, but you know what? That's a beautiful thing to be. If the boat is going down, I'm gonna play the music, and a UFO might come along and rescue you at the last minute <laughs> and say, those guys playing the cool music. Get them. Right. Who's going to be saved on that boat? Exactly. But I think there is hope. And I think the hope is, like what you said at the beginning, it's it's the future. And we may be naive or even mistaken about some of it, or we'll probably be mistaken about all of it. But the future is unwritten and it is possible. I believe in the future to the degree that I know you cannot turn the clock back and – you, all these moral panics, they're all about trying to turn the clock back, not, by the way, to a real time, a time that never existed. It That is a delusion. That is madness. And so if I'm going to have to choose my madness, I choose madness of believing in the, the future and what is unknown because the only way is forward. There is no backwards, I, I guess, unless... We're about to go into the dark ages. Well, but we're not go back, but we can retrieve and bring forward some of the fabulous elements of the past. Yeah, of course. I mean, now we can, like, take anything and right. mix it and mash it. And, you know, like, AI is a great, seems to be the new big anxiety. Yeah. And I'm kind of thinking, when I saw those, uh, those uh, AI images of Republicans in drags, I was like, you know, AI isn't all bad. Right. There's and, some possibility yes. there. <laughs> and, and also the, the Marvel and the DC superheroes wearing Balenciaga or, or Gucci and saying, you know, Gucci is my muse. Yeah. And I, just these, I was like, this stuff is fabulous. So I'm excited. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I'm getting myself excited again. It took me a while to adjust. Mm. to proto-fascism yeah but you know i hear stories about what people do in dark times and they do pretty fucking cool things you know the the 1980s new york city and east village that i was talking about was considered by most to be an awful awful time but terrific things 
happened, you know, and, and terrific things will come, will come, you know, I, I like you and Rue believe in the, in the human spirit, you know, that's right. Joy and fab in the face of, of fuckery, right? Uh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Out fuck the fuckers. <laughs> thank you, Fenton Bailey. Thank you so much for having me. I always, you know, I've always loved talking to you. And thank you for, seriously, the, some of the most inspiring ideas and writing that I've had the pleasure and good luck to ever encounter so oh. thank you well thank you mutually we've just like <laughs> one long and little antenna touch of love okay and thank you for being on team human our guest today was fenton bailey you can find out more about him by following the links at teamhuman.fm or check out his book screen age Team Human was produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. On Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.